The first reading is taken from Isaiah, chapter 11, verses 1 to 10, and can be found on page 650 of the Old Testament. A shoot shall come out from the stock of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and will decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt around his waist, and faithfulness the belt around his loins. The wolf shall live with the lamb, The leopard shall lie down with the kid, the calf and the lion and the fatling together, and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the asp, and the weaned child shall put its hand on the adder's den. They will not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. On that day, the root of Jesse shall stand as a signal to the people. The nations shall inquire of him and his dwelling shall be glorious. This is the word of the Lord. Advent is traditionally, uh, less so today, but in the past, a season of penitence like Lent. Psalm 130 shows us ourselves both experiencing penitence for our sins and trusting in God's mercy as a forgiven people able to enter God's presence. So I invite you to stand as we read Psalm 130 together. If you would join in with the bold text in the usual way, and then we will remain standing for the reading of the Gospel. Out of the depths I have called to you, Lord, let your ears be open to my voice. If you recorded all our sins, who could come before you? My hope is in God's word. There is forgiveness with you, therefore you shall be feared. My hope is in God's word. My soul is longing for the Lord more than those who watch for daybreak. My hope is in God's word. O Israel, wait for the Lord, for with the Lord there is mercy. My hope is in God's word. Glory to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. My hope is in God's word. 
The Gospel reading can be found on page 2 of the New Testament. It is taken from Matthew, chapter 3, verses 1 to 12. Alleluia, alleluia. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Alleluia. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Glory to you, O Lord. In those days, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness of Judea, proclaiming, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is the one of whom the prophet Isaiah spoke when he said, The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore clothing of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then the people of Jerusalem and all Judea were going out to him and all the region along the Jordan and they were baptised by him in the river Jordan confessing their sins. But when he saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit worthy of repentance. Do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our ancestor. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptise you with water for repentance, but one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to carry his sandals. He will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and will gather his wheat into the granary but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord. May thoughts and words be to the glory of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. A child on a remote farm looks up at the plain overhead and dreams of faraway places. A traveller on the plain, sees the farmhouse below and dreams of home. My play, says the playwright, was a complete success, but the audience was a failure. (laughs) It's all a matter of perspective, isn't it? And my title this morning is A Matter of Perspective. In 1948, four years before I was born, a remarkable religious phenomenon occurred in the United States. It began in a tent near Hollywood under the preaching of a young evangelist. The crowds were sparse at first, but as the preaching continued, the crowds began to grow. Finally, some rather prominent Hollywood celebrities attended the meetings and were marvelously converted to Christ. At first, the media totally ignored these gatherings, but when some Hollywood well-known names became involved, 
the press began to take a special interest. Eventually, reporters were sent to investigate and interview this rather strange young preacher. There's no similarity with me, obviously, there. He dressed in pistachio-colored suits, wore flaming red ties, spoke with a pronounced southern accent, and yet had incredible appeal to the masses. It was evident God was doing something. That was the beginning of Billy Graham's ministry. And as news of those meetings spread across the country, other cities invited him to come and preach. And soon Billy Graham's ministry blossomed into what, was, what it was to become. And he died just a few years ago at the great age of 99. He'd been a spiritual advisor to 12 U.S. presidents, preached the gospel to estimated audiences of over 2.2 billion, and reached number seven in Gallup's most admired people of the 20th century. I've met him, and he was an incredibly humble man, not at all phased by the fame that surrounded him. I remember him asking for special invitations to be printed that he could give personally to hotel cleaners, lift attendants, waitresses on the, to the mission meetings where he, they would be admitted to the very best seats in the house, sometimes even to royal boxes. So they too had the opportunity of hearing the good news. As it was with Billy Graham in 1948, so it was with John the Baptist in the first century. He too was a young man in his early 30s. He too dressed rather strangely for his day. He didn't wear pistachio-colored suits, but animal skins, and he ate grasshoppers and wild honey. He too preached a powerful message that seemed to have a great attraction to people. At first, they came out by dozens, then hundreds, and then thousands left their cities to hear this remarkable desert preacher. Finally, the response was so great, and this man so popular, that even the religious establishment of Jerusalem became curious. They couldn't really work out what this man was all about. Sometimes, we need to stand back from things to really understand them, to see them in their true perspective. Most people, most of the time, don't do that. We tend to be tied up with things close at hand. We concern ourselves with our plans and hopes and desires, or our family and its affairs. But there is a need to stand back and reflect on the bigger picture on our nation and on our world. Advent is a good time for this. One positive effect of the disastrous events that appear out of the blue into our lives or onto our TV screens, wars, pandemics, disasters, tsunamis, floods, volcanic eruptions, personal tragedy, is to cause us to stand back and realize that we're part of something much bigger that is hard to see when we're in the midst of turmoil, especially if a storm is raging around us. 
John the Baptist was the center of attention. He'd been arrested and soon would be put through the horror of execution. But he was a man who had a different perspective on life and saw how the bigger picture was beginning to work out. Did you know that the first thing described as holy in the Bible was the Sabbath? One concept of the idea of Sabbath is to stand back and see things in proper perspective. Of course, the idea of Sabbath goes back to creation. When God created the world, he figuratively stood back and rested. It's good for us to do that too. To rest from work and activity and worry and concern. To stand back and see things in perspective. God's perspective. Yes, even in the chaos we now live in. God wants us to see our world and ourselves in true perspective. The Bible, time and time again, reminds us of the big picture. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's a big picture. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That's a big picture. A big picture everyone needs to see and understand. But you also find that the people through whom God has spoken in the past, like the prophets through whom the scriptures came, are people who God has first of all called to stand back from life and reflect on its realities. People like Moses or Elijah and all the others. The prophets were people who had stood back and contemplated. And in their contemplation, had heard God speak. Like John, many of the prophets were people who had spent time alone in the wilderness, the desert places. And of course, we're reminded of how Jesus himself spent time in the wilderness. He'd been there 40 days and nights, away from human influence and pressure, alone with God. And today we think of another person who was familiar with the wilderness. John was, of course, a cousin of Jesus. He was marked out as special from before his birth. An angel had announced his coming and his mission in life before he was even conceived. You can read about it in Luke 1. John's upbringing isn't described. Luke simply says, The child grew and became strong in spirit. And he lived in the desert until he appeared publicly to Israel. John's character was formed by God in the desert, in that lonely place. Sometimes we have to spend time in the metaphorical desert. Theologians and other spiritual writers often refer to it as the dark night of the soul. Those times when God seems far away, when we have difficult decisions to make, when life is hard, when we find it impossible to even glimpse the right perspective. If you're in that place today, be encouraged. We're in the season of Advent, of looking forward to hope. John 
wasn't a follower of fashion. His clothes were made of rough camel hair. He fed on what could be found in the desert with honey and locusts. By the way, if the idea of eating locusts makes you think of, I'm a celebrity, get me out of here, I should mention that there is a thought that John didn't actually eat the locust insect. Locusts are also a type of fruit that grows in that part of the world, and maybe he ate locust fruit. I personally much prefer to think of that. But whatever he ate, John was a man who at God's bidding had stepped back from society. He had been able to see his world and his generation in true perspective and now he breaks onto the scene with God's message for his people. John's message was a simple one. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. He could see that his people were heading in the wrong direction. Repent means to turn around and change direction. It's a message our world needs to hear today. Matthew doesn't tell us what John told the people to do, but we know from the other Gospels that he was fairly practical and specific about the way that people's lives needed to change. He called for a practical sharing with the needy. He told those who had two coats to share with the person who had none. He called for honesty in people's dealings with each other. And he called for a turning away from violence and bullying. world needs to hear it, doesn't it? Above all, he called for a turning to God that was expressed in confession and baptism. It was a message then, and it's the same message today. Just listen to the news, if you're in any doubt. But there was a danger. John knew that some people like to do religious things just for the sake of it. They like to think that God will be pleased with them if they act religiously. And this is surely such a warning to us who are religious. John knew what the religious people of the day were like. After all, his father had been a priest serving in the temple. When he saw the religious people coming to him, he left them in no doubt that just adding baptism to all their other religious achievements was pointless without true repentance, without a turning of direction. Going to the temple, saying prayers, offering sacrifices, are all pretty pointless without love, without bearing fruit in the shape of generosity, honesty and peace and goodwill in our relationships. John is aware that God's judgment is coming. If people are to avoid that, then they have to be serious with God about the way they live. That is still true today. God sees right through our show and pretense. He sees if we have repentance that is sincere. It can't just be formulaic. But John also came at a special time. 
And for a special reason, he came to prepare the way for Jesus. He came that people might be ready to receive Jesus and the message that he came to bring. John knew that Jesus would eclipse him. He knew that his work was only really the preparation for what Jesus would do. One thing that John clearly states about Jesus is that he has come to judge. And we are now in the penitential season of Advent and our purple stole. When John is locked up in prison and Jesus doesn't seem to be acting in the role of judge, John begins to doubt. He sends and asks Jesus, are you the one who is to come or should we look for another? Jesus perhaps doesn't fulfill John's expectations of a judge. But Jesus does promise that when he comes to the world a second time, then he will be the judge of all. That is the equal message of Advent. We look again at the first coming of Jesus, but we also look forward to the second. And that's good news for us all. Because it means one day, all evil and injustice will be judged, as well as all cold, callous, heartless indifference. But there is something else that John tells the people that Jesus will do. He will baptize with the Holy Spirit. The problem throughout the history of God's people, the problem that all the prophets had to contend with, was that although the message they preached was good, although they had God's word to direct God's people, so often their words fell on deaf ears. People were hard-hearted. Time and time again, God's people failed to turn from their sin and suffered the consequences. But John's message was that a time had come when God would change all that. Someone was coming who would not only tell the people what God required and what God was truly like, he would also ultimately send the Holy Spirit into the hearts to give them the right desires and to enable them to do God's will. So Jesus arrives. This is the man to whom John has pointed. This is the man for whom John has prepared the way. And Jesus comes to be baptized. John didn't want to do it. He's not worthy to baptize the Lord. But Jesus insists, for he has come to share our humanity We worship a God who isn't removed from the human experience, however painful it is. He is a God who the prophet Isaiah tells us has our names engraved on the palms of his hands, who shelters us from the storm under the intimate shadow of his wing and who constantly responds to our cries of pain and distress with the comforting words, I know, I understand. For he does. He does understand. God, do you know what it's like to be misunderstood and misinterpreted? 
And he says he does. Do you know what it's like to be rejected? And he says he does. Do you know what it's like to be falsely accused? And he says he does. Do you know what it's like to see someone you really love suffer? And he says he does. Do you know what it's like to lose a child? And he says he does. The prophet Isaiah said it long ago. He was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, and by his stripes we are healed. Jesus had come to be our example. Jesus had come to be obedient to his Father. And Jesus goes through the waters of baptism to give us an example to follow. And of course, baptism dramatically symbolizes the dying to self and rising to new life in Christ. As Jesus came out of the water at his own baptism, heaven was opened. That unseen separation of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world was momentarily exposed. And we can see that it is and what it is. As Jesus himself told us, it is close at hand. So what's it like to live in this kingdom of God that is so close? We should go back and see what the kingdom Jesus preached of looked like when he was walking the earth. Do you know what we find in the kingdom that he brought in? That the dead were raised to new life. The sick were healed. The possessed were released. Lives were transformed. Priorities were overturned. Hope was given to the hopeless. Miracles meant that mountains were moved. And you know, the good news, the wonderful news is that today, where there is death, there can be new life in Christ. There is healing of body, mind and spirit. There is release from addictions and pressures and sadness. Lives can be transformed beyond recognition. What once seemed to be essential can become unimportant. Hopefulness can wipe away hopelessness. And with God, all things are possible. In this season of Advent, as we look not only to celebrate his first coming as the infant of Bethlehem, but also to that day when he will come again in glory. May we be ready to meet him, and may we be ready to meet him again this morning in bread and wine, the ordinary things of this world which God will make special. Indeed, may God's kingdom come, and may God's will be done. Amen.